dudes and dudettes. I am freaking excited for this episode. This is episode 141 of The Anxious Truth. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for hanging out. Today, I am going to get to talk to Dr. Sally Winston. And I'm not going to lie, I'm kind of fangirling over this. I am not going to lie and be honest about it. So those of you who have listened to the podcast for any extended period of time have heard me talk about things that Dr. Winston writes about, teaches about, has made a career being an expert on for years, along with her writing partner, Dr. Marty Seif. And Dr. Seif was on the podcast about a year and a half ago. They've written some amazing books, um, Overcoming Unwanted Intrusive Thoughts. The one we're going to talk about today is Needing to Know for Sure. And she's written books with Dr. Seif uh, uh, for other therapists to use. Uh, so to give you a quick rundown, Dr. Winston is the real deal, right? She is the real deal. She is the founder and co-director of the Anxiety and Stress Disorders Institute of Maryland. And she is the first chair of the Anxiety and Depression Association of America's Clinical Advisory Board. She's been received awards for this stuff. She is literally considered a master clinician. She teaches other therapists how to intervene and treat anxiety disorders. The woman knows what she's talking about. I'm super excited about this. So I don't want to waste any more of your time. I want to get going right away. So um, all right, let's get cooking. Let's bring Dr. Winston on and you guys are going to dig this. We're going to talk about needing to know for sure uh, this like need for certainty and guarantees that we can never have. So here we go. Okay, we are back. Um, I have Dr. Sally Winston on with me where I could see her. You guys can't see her since this is audio only. But Dr. Winston, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. I cannot tell you I'm how cool this is. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much. I know you guys are busy. So Dr. Winston, along with her writing partner, Dr. Marty Seif, have written a book called um, The Need to Know for Sure, which is about the obsessive drive for certainty and guarantees in life that really underlies so many of the problems that you guys listen to on the podcast and we talk about in the, in the social media community. And we all know that we hate uncertainty and we hate vulnerability and we hate feeling unsafe because we don't know. And uh, Dr. Winston helped write what is a spectacular book on this topic. I would urge you all to listen to it. And if you go to theanxioustruth.com slash 141, That'll be the show notes for this episode. I'll have a link where you guys want to check out the book. You can go get it. Um, Dr. Winston, welcome. Tell me about how did you wind up focusing so much on, on this stuff? Give me the Reader's Digest version. How did you wind up where you were? Uh, well, uh, I think what we did was try to find a way to address issues that people with OCD and anxiety disorders have without labeling them something that they didn't know they had. So when we first did our book on uh, uh, overcoming unwanted intrusive thoughts, we didn't put OCD in the title because people who already know they have OCD know to where to look, but people who don't have OCD don't know where to look. Uh, so that needing to know for sure seemed to be something that was something people could identify with, even if they'd never had treatment, even if they had no diagnostic label, even if they just wanted to find some help. So we used that as our title because we were trying to address the underlying issue in so many anxiety disorders, which is the intolerance of uncertainty and the prominence of doubt. Yeah. I think that's an excellent approach because the book is so rich and deep in terms of its clinical background, but you did a really good job of speaking to maybe the average layperson who has these problems. And I really appreciated that when I was reading. So 
Mission accomplished. That's what we're just trying to speak ordinary English. Yes. Well done. And that's what we're that's that's what our goal has been ever since we started writing together. Yeah, yeah. Well done. Well, you guys definitely have a very friendly tone tone to the way you write, and I think it makes it very accessible, which is great. And you even managed to throw in some technical stuff like paradoxical effort and, and things of that nature and habituation without sounding like you're teaching your college class, which I appreciated also. <laughs> Well, thank you. So let's talk about, if we will, and we chatted a little before I hit the record button. One of the biggest issues that I run into as I speak on this topic over the years is that people who are looking for help, they've tried all the other stuff, right? They've tried all the body-centric things, and they've tried all that, that sort of stuff, and nothing's working. And then they run across this sort of cognitive behavioral therapy type approach. And when they hear things like, no, you don't want to make this thing go away. You want to become comfortable and competent and confident in your ability to handle uncertainty or discomfort. They hate it. So many mm -hmm. people have a real, they recoil from that idea. They resist it. It's scary because we're asking them to do uncomfortable, scary things, you know, repetitively, which is understandable. But there is such a resistance uh, that sometimes I think is bred by the mainstream advice that they hear all the time, which is always focused on providing that soothing and reassuring mantras and right. saying, right? As a clinician, and, and, how do you deal with that? If the soothing and reassuring worked, I'd be all for it. But the whole point is that people who consult with us are people who have tried all that stuff and the, and the damn discomfort and misery and disability all come back. So we're trying something very different, which is, I think, much more profound, uh, which is not so much to change what you're thinking or change what you're feeling, but change your relationship to what you're thinking and feeling so that it can't bully you, so that you, you're not scared of it, so that... If you just talk about face your fears, of course, why would anybody just go face their fears? That's the whole point. But if you talk about changing your relationship, your experience of fear or your experience of doubt or your experience of uncertainty, then it becomes an entirely different enterprise. What we're talking about is really not a bunch of techniques. And again, if we found a technique that worked Believe me, we would immediately tell the world. Yeah. But techniques by themselves are not helpful because they are attempts within a framework that you already have that isn't going to work. What this is, it's a real shift in the way you relate to your symptoms so that they eventually don't matter. Yeah. Now, what that means is that it doesn't mean, oh, you have to accept it. So you're just stuck like this. What, what it means is the way out of this is indirect. It's not direct. If, if the symptoms, the thoughts, the feelings, the doubts, if they don't matter, then what happens is you stop dreading them. You stop anticipating them. You stop leading your life trying to get away from them or keeping them from happening. You stop avoiding. Yeah. And if that happens, then what happens is your entire level of sensitization goes down. And then what happens is your anxiety disorder starts to lessen on its own. So the thoughts happen less often or less, less intensely, or they just kind of fade out on their own 
if you don't make them important, if you don't let them bully you. Right. And that's the point, really, is it's really very different. That's true. And, and I often tell people, if you're aiming to make it go away, you're aiming at the wrong thing. First, we learn to not be afraid of it by having right. those new experiences. And we learn from those experiences. And there's a way to have those experiences so we can learn those lessons. You know, nobody... I mean, most people with anxiety disorder have a trait called anxiety sensitivity, which I'm sure you've talked about in other podcasts, which is the fear that you're not going to be able to handle it. Right. Right? Yeah. And so then when somebody says, okay, well, now go handle it, you say, goodbye. You know, yeah, I really don't want to go handle it. Yeah. But the idea is if we can, if we can puncture your beliefs about the thoughts, the feelings, the doubts, that they're dangerous, or that they're meaningful, or that they have to be avoided, then that changes dramatically. It really does. And people say, well, how do you know you're fully recovered? Well, when you don't care if you're recovered or not anymore. That, that's which is oh, that's a, perfect. a crazy statement. But and again, sometimes yeah. people, their heads explode when I say that, but I'm like, you'll know when you get there. Trust me, just yeah, you won't yeah. have to ask anymore. Well, it's a very profound shift. Um, and it's, it's about no longer struggling with your mind. Exactly. You know, weird stuff happens in everybody's mind. But it's if you don't care about the weird stuff that happens in your mind, it can't run your life. Yeah. And it can't make you feel bad. It can't make you feel ashamed. It can't make you change your mind about what you're planning to do. It's not in charge. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about, because, you know, we want to talk about the whole, and uncertainty. I mean, I believe the, the, the intolerance of uncertainty, it, it does run at almost the foundation of all of this. Whether you're, somebody right. is uncertain that a panic attack is not truly dangerous, or they're uncertain in social situations, that intolerance of the unknown, or the unknowable, yeah. or the uncontrollable, really is a big deal. So I love the way you guys frame it, you know, worried mind, false comfort, wise mind. And I, I read somewhere there where you want to actually give them names, OCD, which was yeah. brilliant. <laughs> so, but um, what I find, this is what I, here's what I, one of the things I find fascinating. And again, you guys really have to check out the book, follow the link and go to the book because the way uh, doctors Winston and I uh, see frame this is really, and, and the, the dialogues you show between these three components of your mind. Excellent. What I have found is if you take it outside of somebody's head though, and I know you kind of don't live in this world, like you were saying in the beginning, but in the world of mental health, self-help, personal development online, which so many of my listeners are immersed in, they're looking for an answer daily. You, they are the worried mind. The, yes. Yes. The false comfort is the internet. It is all of the, the self-help and, and soothing people and you got this and gratitude journaling and choose happiness and You'll, you and got this. Aromatherapy okay. and everything. Oh, else. you are my hero. Yeah. Yes, thank you for saying yeah. aromatherapy, essential oils, weighted blankets. I I get so much heat for picking on those things, but in yeah. the end, like the internet becomes the false comfort, and then they, it's so hard to get somebody to embrace what you call the wise mind, which is that that shift, looking at it differently, backing away from that internal dialogue. Where does the wise mind come? I have found that like. Unfortunately, a voice like yours gets drowned out. You you are the wise mind in this in this <laughs> in the end. If we look at it externally, right? So the yeah. person is the worried mind. The internet at large, the mainstream sort of mental health self help thing is false comfort. We need wise mind voices, and those voices get drowned out by Russell Brand and memes and inspirational quotes that don't actually solve the problem. And I wish I knew how to fix that. 
I'm afraid that that's, well, that's actually the reason that Marty and I started writing is that we, we actually, we have always had this approach um, because our original teacher was somebody named Claire Weeks. I don't know if you've ever heard of Claire Weeks. If there was no Claire Weeks, this podcast doesn't exist. I didn't write my book. Nothing happened. So yeah. Claire Weeks figured it all out in the 60s before anybody else was even on the scene. Yeah. And Claire Weeks was introduced to, Marty actually knew Claire Weeks. Um, I never met her, but um, her work I stumbled into, and it was such a profound paradigm shift away from um, what was being taught at the time. And what was being taught at the time is that rational thoughts need to be countered. I mean, irrational thoughts needed to be countered with rational thoughts. If you would change how you think, then that would change how you feel. That was cognitive therapy. Yeah. And behavior therapy was basically go and face your fears a step at a time. If you get too anxious, back away and then start again. Mm -hmm. It was a very different world at the time that we stumbled into the work of Claire Weeks. And what Weeks was saying because of her own recovery um, was that recovery is when the symptoms don't matter when you're not scared of them, when they can't make you feel ashamed or interfere with your life. And the fact is that there isn't any anxiety symptom that people without anxiety disorders don't have. We all have them. We all have the something we want to be sure about. We all have something that disturbs us that we would like to nail down for sure. We have, we all have bizarre thoughts or embarrassing thoughts or all of the, all of the symptoms, including times when your heart beats fast. But the difference is that people with anxiety disorders seize on them and then be, be, work on them. They get entangled with them. They try to get rid of them. And that entanglement all by itself is the power that's what gives the power to the symptoms. Yeah, yeah. It's the entanglement. It's not the symptoms themselves. Oh. Um, this is a hard sell at the beginning. Oh, it is a hard sell. Because there's so much about here's how you relax. And frankly, you stumble into something that really works, more power to you. You don't need to listen to me. Yeah. But what happens is people, people try everything one after the other after the other and they're always searching because the symptoms come back yeah and that that approach that says i'm going to try and soothe it this is how you relaxed if i see one more post about here's five things you can do when you have a panic attack i'm going to lose my mind but they're out there and people are immersed in them and then they they gain what i like to call almost contextual recovery i'm okay as long as Right, as and, long as I don't leave the state of Maryland, correct. as long as I have my husband with me, as long as I don't leave my house. Yeah, yeah, but or, we're trying to yeah. eliminate the as long as. The statement ends with I'm okay, never I'm okay as long as, just I'm okay. Which I'm is, okay enough. Yeah, oh, that's good. Now, you talked about that in the book, I'm, I'm certain enough, or yeah. I, I don't, I'm not, I can't have certainty, well, you know, but I can as, make the best guess. Is, right, is, and it's know. always the best guess, and as Marty says in the book, when I say, when I say, I'll meet you at the corner for coffee at 10 o'clock, I don't say, barring I have a heart attack before I get there or that I'm not hit by a car on my way there. I just kind of assume I'm probably going to get there. Right. And m- most of life, we do just kind of assume we know. Yeah. Um, 
And so we have that skill. We have the skill of living with the illusion of certainty. We kind of know if you just, if you poke at it a little bit, you can see that you can't be certain. Yeah. We're willing to kind of go with that, except for this one thing. That you have to know absolutely. <laughs> that is so true. And I've had people like, in my Facebook group and, and like I said, the social media community around the podcast, every once in a while, I have that light bulb moment. Like, wait a minute, how come I don't care so much about this thing, but this thing? Oh, I really care about that. And they noticed it. So right. let's talk right. for a minute about, you know, the, the fear. It all comes down to fear in the end. It's fear of the uncertainty, the unknown, the uncontrollable, and the seeking of reassurance. So let's talk about the difference between productive reassurance and unproductive reassurance. It's huge. Right. It makes there it is such a thing as productive reassurance. Yeah. You know, if you think to yourself, you know, did I did I put my keys in my pocket? Then you check your pocket, there are your keys, and then you carry on. Yeah. Or or if you have a blood test result that looks weird, you go to the doctor and he says, no, that's fine. We see that all the time. We'll just check it in a year or so and see what happens. And you're done and you're done. So productive reassurance has an ending it, it, and it ends either with an action plan or a no action plan. Like you, you make a decision to either do something or not do something and you don't revisit all your doubts. Now that doesn't mean that productive reassurance gets rid of all doubts because it doesn't. Right. You can always have doubts even though you have an action plan you're proceeding it doesn't loop around the way unproductive reassurance does where you come back and you need more reassurance and you come with yes but what if that happens over and over and over again looping and taking over your life right. so unproductive reassurance is reassurance that is either uh, hidden empty or provokes more checking yeah Right. Yeah. And I think knowing the difference um, and sometimes it's really difficult when people seek that reassurance and you have to tell them, I can't, I'm not going to give that to you. In fact, at some point, I'm not going to even let you ask for it anymore. And I'm going to try and offer productive reassurance. And I'm going to reassure you of something different, which is that you can handle not knowing. So as opposed mm -hmm. to saying, it's okay, it's going to be fine, because I don't know if it's going to be fine. We never know. But I can we say to somebody, we, well, we, we don't, don't know if it's going to be fine, but, but you can handle whatever comes up. Well, yes. And we and we have to be kind and compassionate about this. Right. But it's not kind and compassionate to continue to do something that doesn't help. Yeah, that's true. You know, Temporary and, and the comfort. ultimate kindness is to say you're strong enough to handle this. But it can be done with humor. It can be done together. It can be done lightly. Yeah can be done. Oh, there you go again. It's often done with me starting to give reassurance and then realizing I just got trapped <laughs> laughing at myself. Yeah, because it's a natural thing to want to reassure someone who's asking for reassurance. Of course. But the fact is that you don't need that reassurance, even though you think you do. And so it's very, very respectful to collaboratively not reassure. Yeah. And that includes the patient not reassuring themselves, which is much, much, much harder to deal with. Because people have developed habits of talking back and forth in their head, they say, well, what if and then they say, Oh, don't be silly in their heads. And you would think that, oh, it's going to be fine coming from you. What some bad therapies call positive self talk. Oh. 
you would think that that would be helpful. Actually, it ends up reinforcing the what if and the what if comes back. So that kind of automatic self-reassurance, people have practiced for years and years and years, and it's very hard to stop it. It is hard. So, so what happens is you issue to yourself, what if, you know, what if I'm sick? And then you issue to yourself before you can even think about it. Oh, come on, you'll be fine. And you don't even realize you've done it. So the treatment refer as, says to you, no, bring back the what if again. Always end with the what if. Always end with the O. Don't end with the C, the checking or the compulsion. Right. End with the O and then just stop right there. And if you're very consciously allowing yourselves a thought that what if I'm sick, right? Mm -hmm. Not what if I'm sick, yeah. but allowing yourself the thought that what if I'm sick, which is quite different because it's a thought. Yeah. And all of this work is about not addressing the content of the worrying, but addressing the way it acts, the way it repeats itself, the way it behaves, the way it feels, but not the content. Yeah, yeah. So many good points. I loved how you talked about, you know, maybe using humor and being kind and gentle with take slowly sort of taking away that reassurance. And you're right, it's easy to get trapped in providing it because we all want to make each other feel better. That's just exactly. wired into us. So, so much of the things that you guys write about and I talk about are counterintuitive, which makes them hard to accept, but yet they work. So good. Yeah. If so you good. think about facing fears this way, that imagine a ladder that's in software outside your house and it's leaning against your house and it's got I don't know, eight steps, but it's very, very softer. If you get on the first rung, the ladder goes into the earth. And you get on the second, it's only one step on the second, and the ladder goes further into the earth. By the time you get to the top of the ladder, it's one step. And there's a whole ladder underground and just two little poles and a little tiny step. And if you work at your, with yourself in that gentle way, then you get to the top of the ladder. Yeah, the fear we talk about fear ladder a lot, so that's mm -hmm. that's great. You, this is so good. I could talk to you about this for two hours. Clearly, I won't do that. So we'll wrap it up. There's so many things to cover in this book that we can't go through all of it, but I think you've been tremendously helpful, and I so appreciate you taking the time to do this. I'm glad to do it. Yeah, thank you so thank much. Thank you for the big audience you have, and for disseminating this attitudinal shift, this whole different way of approaching anxiety, because there's not a lot of people who are doing that. So I really am glad you are. Uh, well, thank you so much. I'll keep fighting the good fight or I'll try anyway. And, and, and <laughs> if, if, you'll, if you'll do it again, maybe we'll have you back on because I know that everybody's going to really enjoy listening to this. So Okay. Okay. Right. Thanks, Dr. W. Appreciate it. Okay. Take care. Okay, we are back. And by back, I mean still standing at the same desk that I've been at since like seven o'clock this morning, but back nonetheless. Okay, I had a really good time doing that interview. Dr. Winston is super friendly, very cordial, friend, uh, she's funny, very easy to talk to. And I do appreciate that she took time out of a, what I'm sure is a busy schedule to spend with us today 20 or 30 minutes. If you have been listening to this podcast for any extensive period of time, or you've read my books, or you follow me on social media, not a lot of what she said will be new to you. Like all of that should have rung a bell. You've heard all of that before. Nonetheless, 
she may bring a different point of view, like another way to make you look at it and, and think about it. I mean, she said a few things that really kind of opened my eyes a little bit. So hopefully you got a benefit there. We can always learn from people. We can always find different points of view, different angles to view this from, different mindsets to get into, different ways to frame the problem that just sort of resonate with us. So it's always worth having folks like her on the podcast. I will continue to do that. The book we were talking about that she wrote with Dr. Seif is called Needing to Know for Sure. And they wrote about that unquenchable desire to eliminate all uncertainty and the need to know. You must know for sure. Uh, it's a great book. I would urge you to check it out if you'd like to. You can find it through a link on my website, which is theanxioustruth.com slash 141. That will be the show notes for this particular episode. I'll make sure there's an Amazon link there. Full disclosure, it is in fact an affiliate link. I still have not made the minimum $100 on this stuff. Uh, when Amazon, when we earn $100 on our affiliate links, Amazon will send me a check or whatever. I will immediately donate all that money to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America. So if you're going to buy the book, buy it through my website so we can at least raise money for a good cause. And uh, yeah, just check it out anyway. It's a good read. It's a short book and it might shed some light on things for you. So go check that out. Uh, as always, I'm going to ask a favor. If you are listening on iTunes or some platform that lets you rate or review the podcast, then take a second and rate the podcast or even write a little review. Algorithmically, it helps other people find the podcast. And if you found it when you needed help, maybe somebody else will find it when they need help. So I would appreciate that. I will leave you as always with Afterglow by my friend Ben Drake, who you can find at facebook.com slash Ben Drake Music. Ben, thanks as always for letting me use the tune. And I think we're going to have a new sign-off going forward. You guys have known I've been a little obsessing about this lately, but I think at the end of the episode, I'm just going to remind you that this is the way. And this is where your story begins. You got the feeling that you're going to win. Yeah, you're on your way. It's in the afterglow. It's in the lyrics of the songs we know. It's in these feelings that you never show.